Welcome to Leader You by Black River Performance Management, where we believe work should fuel the human spirit, not drain it. In this leadership podcast, we will dive into the lived experiences of people flourishing in today's workplace and beyond. Join us to hear real-life examples of experiences from our own lives and from the leaders we know and trust. Today's sponsors are Radon Professionals. Good morning. Thank you for joining us on the Leader You podcast. This morning, I have the pleasure of having the guest, Vanessa Moss. I'm first going to introduce her with a small introduction and why I have had her on the podcast today. Uh, Vanessa has a career in nonprofit professional work. She has been living a life of professional service since 2008. She graduated from John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio with a bachelor's degree in communications and earned a master's degree from California State University in public administration with a specialty in public and nonprofit management. She has worked for the American Cancer Society for 12 years at the start of her career, growing from a community-level partnerships to the Director of Regional Market in San Diego. In 2016, she was promoted to a national role of writing and activating global volunteer onboarding processes for the American Cancer Society, as well as training national staff on volunteer engagement strategies and practices. In 2019, Vanessa joined Children's Village, a federally accredited residential treatment program for children as a role of Director of Charitable Giving and promoted recently to Chief Executive Officer in May of 2021. She spent many years moving around um, the country in partnership with her husband, Eric, while he served as an FAA-18 pilot in the United States Marine Corps. Um, since 2009, Eric, uh, Eric and Vanessa now, um, he works for a major airline, and they're parents to two children, Baron and Everett. And Vanessa is the winner of Kootenai County Top 30 Under 40 Awards, and she's a Coeur d'Alene Rotarian, board member of the National the Idaho Nonprofit Center, and member of the Leadership Committee at the Coeur d'Alene Regional, Regional Chamber of Commerce. It's my pleasure to welcome you, Vanessa. And uh, I'll start by why I invited you to be on the podcast. Uh, I, I select leaders that I get to work with and I meet across um, with all walks of life. And I, for one, uh, I met you at the Idaho Nonprofit Center when I was doing a presentation for the uh, up in Coeur d'Alene. And I realized that you work for the Children's Village and we had that connection. Uh, the connection mm -hmm. is that I had worked for the Children's Village as my first job uh, when I was going to North Idaho College and um, dealing with children in crisis situations was really close to my heart, still is. And so I think right from that moment when I learned that that's where you're working, I found an interest. And since I've been up to revisit the Children's Village, I've uh, stayed in your Airbnb and gotten to know you a little bit better too. So I'm so happy that you've taken the time to talk with us today and to the listeners. Um, I'd like to have you start out with telling your story of how you got to where you're at because you know when we end up in jobs and um in, in nonprofits and and things that really fuel our soul oftentimes it's not the plan it wasn't the plan but we end up places and doors open so can you share your story with us yeah sure thank you for having me um i mean my story really starts in cleveland i uh, had the opportunity to go on scholarship um to John Carroll University, which is a private Jesuit institution in Cleveland. So my upbringing was pretty diverse, uh, much different than here in North Idaho. Um, and so 
when I decided to go away for college, I didn't want to go too far. Um, and so I went to John Carroll and John Carroll, given that it, it has the Jesuit basis uh, curriculum, it's very service oriented. And so I had been raised Catholic and I had lots of questions about my religion. And then when I went to college, I was able to question it really in a healthy manner. And what I understood and learned, I feel like at that age was that service is so diverse in so many different ways. And um, you can serve your community, you can serve your God, you can serve your neighbor, whoever that is that you can serve. I, I, it was kind of eye awakening, like my eyes were just open to, gosh, you know, the things that are important to me aren't necessarily religion, it's it's service and it's service um, in kindness and tithing as well as time and energy. And so that's really what brought me to questioning, you know, the nonprofit sector my junior year in college. So when I was in college, I wanted to make the money. I'm going to make the money. I'm going to figure out how to make the money. <laughs> and so I was, I did internships my whole four years and I did lots of things. I worked for a polymer company. So I wrote press releases for plastics, like the most boring job I've ever had in my whole life. And I hope to never do it again. So I, you know, check that box off. I don't want to do PR. <laughs> That's not it don't want to do marketing, don't want to do press releases. That's not work. That's not enough for me. Um, and so I kind of bounced around different um, different internships. And then I was also a rower in college. And so my four years, um, I was seat seven in an eight seat boat. And if you know anything about rowing, it is teamwork in silence. You say nothing, you do nothing other than sync up every movement in mind and body with your other rowers. And I felt like that was kind of a different point for me too, because I really loved the beauty of that teamwork. Like to be out in the middle of the lake in Cleveland at six in the morning before the whole world starts. And all you hear is the oars just chopping the water right at the same point for eight people. There's such beauty in that. Wow, and I feel like that's just thinking work. about it. Yeah. Yeah, it was incredible. And so I was kind of figuring out like, gosh, this is really fun workout, but really like thematically this rowing is it for me. Like, how do I be a leader and um, figure out where to serve, but also find this like unity with my, my colleagues. And so my junior year, there was a really competitive process for this internship at the Cleveland national air show. And I got it. I was shocked. I mean, it was hundreds of applicants and it was a really rigorous um, interview process, but I was the marketing intern for the Cleveland National Air Show. And part of that was not only doing marketing. So I wrote their um, event program for 80,000 attendees, but also I managed with somebody else, the volunteers. And the Cleveland National Air Show, it looks like it makes a lot of money, but it's actually a nonprofit. And I had no idea that this whole world existed where, you know, hundreds of people, there was only two paid staff and the interns, we weren't paid, obviously. And so I couldn't believe that this whole air show was produced by volunteers. Like to me, that was like mind blowing that service could get that big and that important. Um, and that was a nonprofit. And so after that experience, I just started, I was like, this is it. This is where I want to be. This is the perfect fuse of my skill set and also service. And so that's where I started. And that's where, you know, I started after college. I started looking for jobs and I had the fortune of uh, graduating in 2008 in Cleveland, Ohio, when the entire world imploded on itself with the housing crisis. 
and um, there were no jobs in Cleveland. So like at all, I had friends who were years out of work. Um, and so when I was offered the job in Florida, because my then boyfriend, soon to be fiance and then husband, Eric was in flight school, I was offered a job at the American Cancer Society in Pensacola, Florida, doing community relations and fundraising for Relay for Life. And so I took it and ran because nobody else could find jobs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but also it was a nonprofit and that was my first experience. That's amazing. Yeah. And so how did you end up at Children's Village from yeah. the American Cancer Society? Yeah, I mean, 12 years later, we ended up, you know, we went to Meridian, Mississippi, and then Lemoore, California, while Eric um, became a fixed wing pilot, and he was assigned the F-18. Um, we ended up in San Diego. And so through, there were a couple of years between those moves where we were in really podunk military towns and there weren't, there's no jobs. So I did have a couple of years break in between. But when we arrived back in San Diego, well, when we first moved to San Diego, I was actually able to get another job at the American Cancer Society after having left two years prior as the distinguished giving director. And so I worked on very high end events. Um, in San Diego for a couple of years. And then I promoted out of that into that regional director. We called it something different, but basically matrix managed. So nobody reported to me in San Diego, but I was accountable for all of their goals. And so I matrix managed the entire market, which is the most complex leadership and management <laughs> that you could possibly learn. Nobody actually has to listen to you. You have to empower them to work with you. And that was a really cool learning for me. And so I did that for two years. And then I promoted into a national role um, where I got to rewrite all the volunteer processes for the entire organization. Um, then I started virtual managing. And so I had six people under me in all different time zones that we met only once in our couple of years working together. Um, and then Eric got out of the Marine Corps and we decided that we wanted to live in Coeur d'Alene. So we moved from San Diego to Coeur d'Alene and I was able to actually take my job with me. And I worked... Instead of in San Diego, I worked in the Spokane market. Mm -hmm. But when you have an eight-month-old and a two-year-old, that doesn't work driving 45 minutes five days a week. Um, because as soon as you get to Spokane, somebody's puking at daycare. <laughs> you got to <laughs> turn right back around and pick them up. So um, ultimately, I ended up leaving the American Cancer Society because it wasn't working for our family. And I was fortunate enough to be offered uh, the fundraising role at, at the Children's Village. Um, but it was a part-time role. And so that really helped me balance our, our new family life with Eric gone with the, with, um, the airlines and then here. And then two years later, I was, uh, I feel like this is the fortune of a lifetime, the honor of a lifetime to be the CEO. So now I get to lead and change the world. So I tell our team. That's amazing. <laughs> so do you believe that you've discovered your why or your purpose in in the role or in nonprofits or specifically maybe at Children's Village? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, whatever you do, you should have a passion. There's always going to be hard days, but it's service to me. If you're not, if everything you're doing isn't in service to something, some higher being or some greater purpose, then I don't know. I don't know that I would have enough drive to keep going. And so my why is, you know, I love working for these kids for the village. I do. But I also think bigger picture, it's service. And that's my why. That's amazing. I know you have plenty of challenges at the children's village. Do you want to share some of the challenges that get in the way or barriers? Yeah, I mean, I think 
for everybody right now, our biggest barrier is, you know, hiring. Um, you know, for us as a residential facility, we have 24 hour staffing. So when I took this role, we had to do a full culture shift. Um, that was the biggest pause. I call them formal pauses in my management. And my team knows this now after a year working with me. When I call for a formal pause, it's a whole halt. Like what do what is the system doing that's not serving our purpose anymore? And so when I first took this role on for a couple of weeks, I kind of just watched and listened, but it was pretty apparent that it, we needed a formal pause on people. And that meant like, what is the culture? What are the barriers here? Like, where's the toxicity? We need to like suss it out and then move on. And so unfortunately we did have to move quite a few people out of the organization mm -hmm. before we started seeing it get better. But the biggest barrier for me is culture always. The minute you stop fighting for the village, I, I have to keep it in check my own personal bias because I, I, you're out. Like mm -hmm. I'm not, I can't fight for you if you're not fighting for the kids mm -hmm. or for your mates. And so I think that's the biggest barrier is always going to be culture. Without a good culture, you're not going to be successful. Absolutely. So today we're going to be talking about the leadership competency um, planning and organizing. And that's right mm -hmm. up your alley. You've organized and planned many events for a lot of organizations. But specifically, we were talking about the Children's Village and the fundraising that you have to do to keep keep it, the doors open for those kids. Mm -hmm. So do you want to talk about your experience fundraising? You have to raise like a million dollars a year. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, we, have, I mean, I've, I'm an event planner. I can, I can plan events in my sleep. And I think there's a few of us like that. We don't love it. We're good at it though. Um, you know, we don't like the stress. I don't personally love the stress of events, but it's a means to an end when you're in a nonprofit. Um, so yeah, here at Children's Village, we need to raise on the foundation side about a million dollars a year. Um, we're working on sustainable line items so that we don't have to raise that much every year on the other side. So we actually operate two different nonprofits. So we have the program side and then the foundation side. So my goal really is to get the program side sustainable so that the foundation isn't on the line for a million dollars a year, but at this time it is. And so, you know, for event planning, I think you have to go backwards. You know, anybody who thinks the event is the day of is wrong. It's, it's the year prior, you know, it starts 12 months prior and you need to back into how much you have to raise um, you should always walk into an event. These are the tried and true strategies that I know and I've learned and taught. You have to walk into the event with your expenses covered, period. No matter what event it is, if your expenses are not covered, you're flying by the seat of your pants and it's not a good idea. <laughs> um, and so for planning and organizing, you know, you just need to work backwards. Like what is your monetary goal? And then how do you make the guest experience superior so that that monetary goal can be attained. So what are some of the things that you do in your event? Would, would you want to talk about your annual event? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, so I have the great fortune of having my colleague, Emily Aizawa, helping me now. But when I came into this role as the fundraiser, we raised about $70,000 the year prior to me coming in. Um, and that's just not enough. That's just not, it's not enough for what we need to raise. Mm -hmm. And so I really needed to retool it. Um, and so we had about 100 people the year prior to me coming in. And then when I was looking at the event, I said, okay, let's just, you want incremental growth. You don't want to explode it because that will never be sustainable. And so my goal was 200 people. Let's try to get 200 people to the event. 
And so we sold it out. Um, and then COVID hit. That was fun. And so COVID, I had a 200 person event that was supposed to be at the resort. I thought I was going to raise about 150, 200,000, which is incredible for what we've ever raised. And then COVID hit and we had to go virtual and that sucked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think anybody in the fundraising sector that has experienced COVID, like God bless you, because it was not fun, mm-hmm. but we did it. Um, and so what I did was I pivoted because the thing is, is the kids were still living here. So here at the, ha- at the house, while everybody else, you know, might've stopped their work, like the schools closed or some, some organizations did not need the fundraising. For us, the kids live here full time. Mm -hmm. And so with or without a fundraiser, they're still living here. So we need to fundraise money. We weren't in a place where financially we could do without. We had to do it. And so for those 200 people, I shifted to a totally virtual format. And we did these like event boxes with like a bottle of wine and all the sponsor amenities that we had sold. We just pivoted them to like, you know, the dessert sponsor had little sugar cookies with their logo on it in the box, like just doing whatever we could to show the sponsors that we were making good on their, on their investment. Um, and we did, we hit goal. We, we went over our goal. Um, we were over $200,000 even virtually. That's incredible. Um, but I hoped we never did it again. Yeah. <laughs> I never want to exactly. do it again. Yeah. But it was really fun after the event because a lot of different organizations locally reached out to me and said like, okay, what did you learn? What was good? What was bad? I feel like that's the tried and true service is you need to create a healthy ecosystem. It's not competition. We all need to survive with each other. Mm -hmm. Um, And so other organizations were reaching out to me. That was really exciting to me because that's that's exactly how we should be working together. Right. That's amazing. So um, how do you pass this leadership skill on to the people that you're working with? I just, I keep asking them and challenging them, like what, you know, let's say a problem with, um, you know, attendees, like, well, what's, what is the most service oriented way to handle this? And that's just a question that I continue to ask teams. Um, you know, when we're hiring, let's say with HR, you're not, they're not serving you like, you know, an employee coming in, they don't owe you anything. And, and the minute you think that they do, they'll hop to somewhere else. And that's that culture discussion. And so just yesterday, um, we had a dialogue about, because um, we have to do the federally enhanced background checks and a, and a candidate who we had hired last week was kind of dragging their feet on fingerprinting, which is silly, but it, it delays everything. And so, you know, when I asked my teammate, you know, have you reached out to him? Um, she said, well, no, you know, he shouldn't, he should be you know, doing it if he wants the job. It's like, well, no, he shouldn't. You know, that's us asking him to do that. And so we need to serve him. Like what barriers have we created to make it not easy for him? And so that's kind of how I teach my team to challenge each other. I also really believe in the um, the construct of, there's two constructs of leadership that I believe everybody should know, especially at my level, um, as you lead an organization or even a mid mid to senior level manager should understand and be able to teach crucial conversations as a leadership construct. You should be able to challenge your entire team at any level to have a crucial conversation with you as well as their colleagues and peers. And so crucial conversations, it's a really, really form formatted way to challenge each other. And by creating a neutral way to communicate, it's less like tit for tat Mm -hmm. you can literally physically say I need to have a crucial conversation with you and then you can go into it because it levels everybody out and it removes the emotion 
And the other thing is the Oz principle. The Oz principle is a framework. It's a really dry book, but the concept is incredible. It actually follows the um, Wizard of Oz and the Yellow Brick Road. And so it basically challenges you like, well, I mean, you can follow the Yellow Brick Road if you want, but is that actually walking you to the outcome you want? Or are you just following the leader? You know, the Oz principle really is, it's a way to own the challenges that you're having. And so what it, the Oz principle is like, you own, so you say what you you think, right? You And then you own it. Anytime you're complaining, you say like, gosh, this person isn't doing, you know, let me go, this is the way you say it. In the Oz principle, you say, let me go below the line. I'm really annoyed that this person is dragging their feet and not doing their fingerprinting. And then you go above the line with the action, take hold of it and say, you know, below the line, I'm really annoyed that this person isn't being proactive and doing their fingerprinting, but I'm going to go above the line and say, maybe our systems aren't helping him. Let me call him to see how I can serve him. Um, and that's that's the Oz principle. And then that's crucial conversations. And I, that's really how I teach it. And by having every teammate know the, that verbiage and that nomenclature of those two constructs, I feel like it can diffuse a lot of tension and help people learn and grow as they move on. I love that. Working with hundreds of organizations, I think the one of the two biggest obstacles that we see in organizations is people not being able to have crucial or difficult conversations. And so mm -hmm. enhancing that skill, um, paying attention to culture and understanding that we all have different forms of communication, but we, if we have a common language, which you've established yeah. in your culture, then people are more comfortable. Plus, they have to have the psychological safety to be able to have those conversations. Because even if you, even if you have the skill set to have the crucial or difficult conversation, if there's no psychological safety along with that, then it really... And that's all part of the culture. So uh, yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up. And I love those principles. I'm familiar with them. I've heard them. Um, I'm not certified in crucial conversations. I've taken courses in it. Um, it just depends on the, the branding, if it's called difficult mm -hmm. conversations or crucial. But right. I would say in every organization, the two two things that we see most often, people not being able to have feedback, give feedback, and um, also not being able to... Um, have discussions around the, the types of topics, having a common language, so that they get defensive, where this mm -hmm. neutralizes, like you said, the playing field where, all right, and if it, if it has to do with an event, your, your event planning, or you're, you're doing something like this, there, we have to be able to have accountability practices. And right. that's the other piece that people have difficulty mid-managers all the way up to ceos that i've worked with have a challenge holding people accountable because they don't want to be the bad guy or they you know they like their people pleaser or or all of these obstacles that come up so there's skills that, that really have to be built and um, cultivated so i love the tips that you've given on that is that some of the kids walking in yeah all of our teens are going into group right now oh, awesome <laughs> me through the window um, we have a group processing so through the summer curriculum all of our teenagers go through therapeutic groups and so they're coming in to do that that's amazing so i i don't know if a lot of people know what children's village does so so when you say you're serving the kids um can you give us like a a 360 foot view of what serving the kid these kids who these kids are mm -hmm. yeah i mean our kids 
Um, I hope you can hear me okay. I'm just going to keep my voice down while they go into their group. Um, our kids are about 50% private placement, which means that's why we fundraise. And so the kiddos that live with us um, right now, there's a lot of experience, um, a lot of families experiencing unexpected homelessness with the housing prices uh, going up and rents and things. And so um, a lot of the children that are placed with us, their families basically just walk in and say, I need help. Um, can you keep these kiddos safe while I figure out my housing? And then um, the other half is through the Department of Health and Welfare. So we are a federally accredited qualified residential treatment program. So we have multiple therapists working with us um, and they're able to process through the traumas so that they can thrive outside of the village. How, how much acreage is, how much does it keep cost to keep everything going in, and how, much, how many fundraisers are you doing and events, planning and organizing are you doing? We have two signature fundraisers each year. Um, the last one that we had was our biggest one. And it is, um, we had 580 people wow. here at the village. Um, actually behind me at the field, we had every tent in Coeur d'Alene we rented. <laughs> um, and then we have a Cocktails for a Cause event, which is um, just a fun like cocktail class for only a hundred people. It doesn't raise a lot, but it's a friend raiser. So we, it is extremely expensive to run residential care. We have to raise over a million dollars on the foundation side and our operating budget is 1.7 million. So most of it is payroll um, with the 24 hour staff. We have two houses. And so we can have up to 24 children at any given time. And then if you think, you know, how many, our ratio, we keep pretty low so that we can manage pretty um, intense behaviors. Mm -hmm. So staffing is pretty expensive. Right. Now you just got some grant money to uh, extend and create another building. Is that right? Yes, we are building in between our, our houses. We're leveraging the land that we have to create uh, North Idaho's only assessment center. So a safe teen assessment center is basically a neutral space. So if you think about a child who's truant, um, who is on their way towards uh, the justice system, um, the people who have access to those children are likely the school resource officers when the, when the schools are in. Um, and so by creating a neutral space, we're providing this way to divert children from you know, their, their behaviors or their choices, the natural next step would be basically that they would be locked up. And so that's what we're trying to avoid. Um, as soon as a child enters the justice system, their chances as, a, as an adult quadruples. Um, and so if you can keep them out that first at that point of crisis, you can divert them likely in their future from staying out of the justice system. And so we're building a proper on our property. Um, this really neat, it's about, it's gonna be about 4,000 square feet safety and assessment center where children and families will be able to um, access resources. It's called, it's really a multi-agency resource center. So though it's on our property, it really isn't ours. It's our communities and it'll be run by juvenile probation and diversion, so. That's incredible. Neat. When is yeah. that expe expected to be completed? Well, we, we should break ground by January. We're already in the architectural development phase. Um, so we think in January and probably August or September of next year, the doors will open. So I'll look forward to having you up for you know a tour and just a walkthrough. It's really going to be neat. We're building it 
with a conference room for up to 40 people for trainings and communities, you know, gatherings and just so many different ways to use this space in, in addition to diverting youth um, from, you know, going to jail, basically. Yeah, you're doing incredible work. It just, it just fills my soul to know that there's so much good going on in the world and there's people fighting for the kids and, oh, it just gets me so emotional because... Well, I've, I've worked there and my heart goes out to some of those, just the kids that I used to uh, be a, a room. They called me a room mother at that time. Mm -hmm. I'd spend 48 hours on shift with the kids and um, my heart just goes out to them. So uh, would you be willing to share three pieces of advice or lessons learned, wisdom, anything of, that it comes from your experience for our listeners as a parting gift today? Yeah, I mean, focus on your people. That's, I mean, if you've got nothing else to focus on or you're so overwhelmed that you don't know up from down, focus on your people. Start there. <laughs> what do your people need? Um, make sure that you're seen and heard, you know, as a, as a partner. Um, when I say focus on your people, I mean, your people should at all levels feel that you are accessible and that you will um, take and share feedback appropriately. Um, that's my, my biggest thing to share is just focus on your people. Um, the second is be really strategic, like super exciting, flashy things. I mean, try to, try to be very, very weary of those. Um, a lot of people want in, um, but they're not going to stay and you're going to be stuck running things. And so make sure you do all of your analysis and be really strategic, like look at your monetary goals and back away from them. You know, you shouldn't be projecting more than three to 5% growth. Anything over that is non-sustainable. You know, you might have a really exciting year, but you, you shouldn't be expecting that again. And so I think through COVID, everybody, especially in the nonprofit sector, you really should remember, like, be really strategic. Don't take on too much um, and, and focus on incremental goals. Mm -hmm. And then the third parting gift is, like, you've only got you. And so you got to take care of you. That's something because the last year I had to write the ship and kind of figure out how to fix things, but I lost myself. Um, and so really you've got to prioritize, you know, yourself and your self-care because you're modeling that for your team. That's absolutely true. Thank you so much for your time. I can't wait mm -hmm. to see what you do and I can't wait to be up there again and see the new assessment center and just keep doing the good work you're doing. And thank you for your time. And I, I'm just, I'm just blown away by the work you're doing. Thank you. Huge shout out to our sponsors of the Leader You podcast. Today's sponsors are Radon Professionals. Radon Professionals was established in 2003 in Pocatello, Idaho. Tiffany and Allie took over the company in 2016 and have been rocking the radon game ever since. Radon Professionals specializes in radon testing and the design and installation of radon mitigation systems across Idaho and Wyoming. What is radon gas? Radon gas is an odorless, colorless, tasteless, radioactive gas that comes from the natural breakdown of uranium found in most rocks and soils. Radon finds its way into homes or buildings, and according to the EPA, radon is the second leading cause of lung cancer. The only way to know if a home or building has elevated radon levels is to test it. Whether in its existing home, an office, or new construction project, they have you covered. 
The name says it all. They are radon professionals. When it comes to quality and professionalism, they've set a new standard. It's not good until it's great. They're nationally certified by the AARST and the NRPP. They guarantee their work and warranty their installations. Guaranteed results with every install. Radon professionals, call or text 208-317-3603. Or on the web, you can find them at www.radon-professionals.com. Or check out their Google reviews to see the awesome things their customers have to say. Thank you to the Radon Professionals for sponsoring the Leader You podcast.